0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Patrick O'Malley. Patrick O'Malley has been providing grief counseling and education to clients, volunteers, and colleagues for over 35 years. He's also served as a consultant to physicians, attorneys, and businesses, and has written numerous articles on grief and other mental health topics for many popular and professional publications. What sounds true? Patrick O'Malley is the author of the new book, Getting Grief Right, Finding Your Story of Love in the Sorrow of Loss. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Patrick and I spoke about how there's no one path to grief and how Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five-step model leading to a mythic type of closure and completion has actually created a cage for many people in which they feel ashamed about how they're grieving and how long it's taking. We talked about the myth of closure, our culture's imbalanced emphasis on positivity, and also a new framework for grieving that's based on telling and listening to our shared stories of loss. We talked about how to respond skillfully when someone's grieving, what works and what doesn't, and how listening deep attention and compassion literally changes something in the brain of the person being heard. Finally, we talked about the shift that happens when we realize how our grief is actually a function of how deeply we love. Here's my conversation with Patrick O'Malley. Patrick, to begin with, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write your new book, Getting Grief Right?
1: I was a beginning therapist in 1979, fresh out of graduate school, and was working for a local uh, family service agency. And um, just... Absolutely full of life. I'd finished school. It was a, really an amazing time in the therapy world. It was therapy was really sort of beginning to take off, and it not completely lost the stigma, but there was certainly more openness to it. And so I was well trained and training as I went, and um, taking on all sorts of interesting cases of families and adolescents and couples, and really quite young for a therapist. I was I think 26 when I began. And um, looking back on it, that just seems frighteningly young, but I was. And in 1980, um, my wife and I had uh, our our first pregnancy. She was pregnant and delivered our son uh, three months premature. So he weighed about 2.2 pounds and lived his first six months in uh, the neo ICU. Neonatal ICU. So he was a preemie that we really were very unsure for many many weeks whether or not he would survive. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But he began to grow and he began finally to breathe on his own. And so then we were uh, able to bring him home at age six months, and he was home with us for a little bit under three months, and was, you know, certainly struggling some developmental delays. We had a few trips back to the hospital. But mostly we thought we were out of, out of the woods and on the way. And on May 17th, uh, 1981, he suddenly died and uh, was at our home, and we did everything right. We did CPR. His physician was there immediately. And we were, of course, just uh, without words for the devastation, as were just dozens and maybe hundreds of people who had sort of followed his miraculous life. So then I returned to work, and it was um, in the spring of 1981, and I took a week off and went back to work and, you know, just was trying to sort, understand myself in terms of what had happened and process this just unspeakable loss. And so time went on, and I was struggling with myself, and I had really been not trained at all in Anything to do with grief? Amazingly, in graduate school, and I talk to uh, you know students and grad you know obviously colleagues all the time, and I always ask them that question: Did you get any training? And, and specifically in grief and loss, And the answer is invariably no. That it might have been embedded in a, in another course like family life cycle development, that kind of thing. So I really didn't know much about it, and I began to look and study, and did what I could to understand. And at that point in time, the sort of Bible of how we grieve was the text written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on the stages of grief. And so that I latched onto that, as many had, and kept trying to understand my own grief in the context of a belief that I would go through stages and come to some conclusion. It was also a time in therapy where there was a lot of um, sort of very assertive kind of therapies going on with catharsis and gestalt therapy and this notion of trying to reach resolution, reach closure. Um, and, the, and the word closure became a very key point for me in trying to understand what was going wrong with me. Well, I, this went on for several years, and I also began to get a lot of clients who had loss because I was the guy in town who had had a loss. And so understandably folks wanted to come with, work with me. And I was pretty much preaching to them as I preached to myself that we're on a course here. This is going to go in a sequence, and that sequence is going to lead us through, um, you know, denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance, and you know, we might call it closure, and just bear with me and we'll get there. But well, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening for them, and it certainly wasn't happening for me. And um, I began to doubt... Um, the roadmap I was using and over time then began to really sort of set that aside and do what I sh- might have been doing all along and that is just listen to folks who were coming to see me and listen to myself and understand that this was not a human experience that really lent itself to something as neat and tidy as I had believed it, it should and um, Consequently, there were some turning points in the mid-'80s where I really started to hear what I came to understand, and that is what people really wished to do when they came to see me was to tell me the story of their loss, to help me help them understand that story. And although some folks you know, that I worked with before sort of liked the, the five stages and I'd have them read it and we'd kind of figure out where they were, it really was not ultimately very useful and very fulfilling for them or for me. So the book is really the story of my story in this parallel journey with really probably, I don't think it's overstating it now, after 38 years to say thousands of folks I've sat with who have experienced loss and um, helping them connect with their story, which is very simple and organic in a way. I mean, it, it, it takes us back probably to where grief was before psychology sort of got a hold of it. And tried to make it into a model, and tried to make it um, something more analytical. And so that's there's, um, you know, that's kind of the basic way I got into this. And this book is sort of the outcome of these years and years of my own transition and transformation as a grieving parent and as a therapist. And there's the rich, um, deep understanding that happens even today with folks who just desire to have acknowledgment for their loss and understand that they're not getting it wrong, that their, their loss is based on their attachment to their loved one. That is a unique attachment and something to be honored. And so that all the feelings that come with loss are really, in essence, an expression of that love and that sacred story that uh, connects them with the one who has
0: died hmm You know, at the very beginning of Getting Grief Right, you wrote the following, I want to make clear at the outset that this book offers no promise that grief will end. This book will not help you get over your grief, but it will help you experience your sorrow in its purest form. And I thought that was a very strong position this book offers no promise that grief will end. I think that having grief end, having, as you say, closure, that's what most people think they're looking for. That's what's supposed to happen, right? At a certain point, I'm gonna get over this, right? Go back about my life.
1: Yeah, that is, you know, I think the kind of common way folks think about it, and that's fed pretty strongly, I think, through a lot of different sources in our culture. And the, you know, and then what happens is, well, what's wrong with me because I'm not I must be being deficient in my grief as as the years unfolded and more uh, and more people came to understand the the notion of the stages of grief it really in my opinion is a psychological model that became embedded in our culture to a degree that I don't I'm not sure any other model has and you can hear people they may get it wrong, but they know their stages and there's no there's something at the end. They may not have it all exactly right. but it's been popularized. I noticed in the book, you know you can see it in sitcoms. I saw you know we found a Homer Simpson that uh, Homer's being described that he's got an illness and he goes through the five stages of grief in about thirty seconds. you know so there's just it's just deeply embedded in our culture. So over time, I began to notice more people were coming to see me not just to describe their grief, but to describe or ask the question of what's wrong with me. Why am I still feeling this? I should be done by now. It's been three weeks, six months, two years, fill in the blank. I must be defective in some way because I read an article in a magazine or I heard a newscaster say that, you know, we've got to get closure or there's been some influence there that sets up some reference point that really takes people in – out of their story, and into this self-analytical mode of feeling like they're getting it wrong, or or even worse, sometimes feeling shame for the intensity and the length of the experience that they're having with loss.
0: Are you saying, Patrick, that there's no timeline for grief?
1: What, What I would say is that it is not certainly that the experience of grief doesn't change over time. But there really isn't a timeline to say that then you come to some conclusion and then it's over. It may be less intense over time, but I tell folks all the time, you know, it may change. Um, You know, you may have less intensity and less frequency. But if you have just an absolute moment of despair and sadness 10 years from today, that doesn't mean you didn't grieve correctly. And that, again, I think is folks just continually sort of monitoring themselves about how they're doing. And so the, the language I use is that your loss is a part of your life story. And that story will be with you for your life. And I often say this, and it's just amazing even this week it's happened, where I will say the intensity of your loss is directly connected to the amount of your love. And if you are able to see that, then the self-judgment falls away. The self-criticism dissipates. There's an understanding that our basic design to be attached to those we love is, is what has happened here, that that attachment is now broken in this lifetime. And when it's restated, which I believe strongly that it is, as you know, your, every tear is about your love, then the shame can go away and we can be present to our story. And whatever form that takes for however shapes and forms over years to come,
0: Now, I just want to make sure that I have a clear understanding of your view of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five-step model that, as you say, has been so embedded in our culture. You write a chapter in Getting Grief Right, and you call it the cage of the stages. So obviously, you don't think we should get stuck inside a cage of these five linear progressive stages. So do you think there is some applicability, but it's just not universally applicable, or do you think it's just doing more harm than good and we should throw that model out?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very important question, and there's certainly a lot of conversation, discussion about that. We, we need to back up a step and remember that the original population for whom she was researching that she wrote her five stages were not grieving people. They were dying people. These were terminal patients that she was interviewing. And in that interviewing she began to see these patterns of the five stages, the Nile angle, burgundy, depression, acceptance. And it, you know, it's a little bit debatable. Some of those some folks are pretty firm on how this happened, but I've read a lot about it. And it, it seems that I don't think she, and you'll hear people who have interviewed her and talked to her, she did not mean for this to become so rigid, even if you look at it in its original population of dying people, terminal patients rather than grieving people. But I was guilty, if you want to call it that as much as any, that it was just so simple and sequential, and we're, we're looking for some sort of a foothold in this chaos of loss that um, if we could just march through in a sequence, wouldn't we all feel better? Now, all that being said, she did not stop the next thing that happened, which was its applicability to grief. In Mm -hmm. fact, she co-authored a book on that as well. So, you know, you hear her go back and forth about this when she was alive, that she didn't mean it to be taken so lockstep, but at the same time, she did see its applicability almost anywhere. To her credit, we we would not be where we are today without her because she opened the conversation. She and you look at her early work and the resistance she was getting to this idea of interviewing terminal patients, she was absolutely a pioneer. And you can see her connection to the hospice movement, and you can see her connection to more of an open conversation about it. So how I would answer that question is rather than say these stages always happen and in this order, or say there is nothing valuable about these stages. I would say certainly any of these can happen to anybody. But if they don't happen, you didn't grieve incorrectly. And if they do happen, it's another piece of uh, another way of describing your experience. But where where it went was just so got so confined. That's the that's the metaphor of the cage that it really limited people's um, ability to own their story and embrace their story if it wasn't lining up. And I went through that myself. You know, I went into therapy a couple of times after my uh, son died. And, you know, I was trying to look to figure out where I'd missed it and what I'd done wrong and, you know, why wasn't I at some uh, higher level of acceptance at that time. So I experienced that same kind of internal pressure. And, again, I still see people do it. Again, they may not be able to articulate the theory even now because now I'm many years old from where it came, but they do believe there's such a thing as closure. And to talk about that for a second, you know, best I can figure, the notion of closure sort of worked its way into grief literacy or grief talk coming out of the gestalt therapy movement. You know, a lot of the gestalt was to do various exercises to help you manage your unfinished business so that you could come to closure. Closure loosely being defined, I think is that you've come to some resolution in which whatever was bothering you isn't bothering you anymore. So you kind of look over time, you can see how it, it sort of replaced the word acceptance in Kubler-Ross's language. And um, you'll, uh, you know, if there's a, an event, national event or international event in the next weeks, you will hear folks still talk about closure. Mm-hmm. Is that a, a defined thing that's going to happen? And we've got to make sure that people get that. And that's a lot of what triggers people to come see me is to say, I haven't reached closure.
0: Mm-hmm. I can also imagine... People being confused about the difference between am I grieving or am I depressed, and right. how do I know which one? And if I'm, it's going on and on, and there's no end point. Maybe this is depression. How do you know the difference?
1: Well, that is a, a very important question, and uh, you, they look the same. You know, the you can have if you look down the depression list: low energy, um, overeating, undereating, oversleeping, undersleeping, loss of interest and pleasure. I think what happens is that they parallel, you know, it looks like a parallel process for a while, and I would say certainly that some folks who aren't depressed when they start grieving may end up with clinical depression, and I do think that's a place to seek consultation, to be sure that it is not moving into clinical depression. Oftentimes, one of the distinctive factors with depression is the sense of self-loathing, um, you know, isolation. Uh, a lot of self-criticism. Now, that can happen in grief too, but it's, I think, more dominant with just straight-out depression. So that, I think, is a, is certainly a time to maybe double-check and be sure. My experience is people tend to call dep- grief, depression way too early, and that's where it sort of becomes clinical. Now we've got to treat it as an illness. And for many people, I say, you know, I will make that judgment call, and I say, I think your chemistry's just worn out. You know, it may have been uh, before the loss that you came into this with already some factors. And some folks have wrestled with depression before their loss, and so they need to really keep an eye on it. But with many folks, I'll say, I think you're you're we're ready for a consult. Let's look at trying to manage that. And for other folks, it's more clear that really what they are is sad, not depressed.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in talking, once again, I want to just circle back for a moment about this idea of closure. It sounds like you're saying... There is no closure to grief, actually. It could spring up 20, 30, 40, right. 50 years later. Is that what you're saying? There is no such thing as closure, really?
1: Well, if closure is being defined as I've achieved a level in which I will no longer have a an experience that I would call grief, that would be the most rigid definition of closure. I, I could go this far and say, there, you know, there may be some 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 closures along the way, if if we're going to look at that, you know, that there are things that go along the way that feel like, um, you know, I've moved into a different place. But I think the way closure was typically discussed is that you're done. And so, yes, if we're using the I'm done definition of closure, then there's no room for anything to pop up later. And, um, you know, just we may get into this in a second, but I talk in, in the book a bit about how in the world can we reach that when we have so many triggers in our environment, so many reminders in our environment that, that may um, you know, create a surge of emotion that's going on. Um, so to get back to your question, I think re- closure has been rigidly defined, and in that regard, my hope is we just take it out of the vocabulary, just not make it a thing that we have to wonder if we've got or we don't got. That if we just stay with our story. And that means if you have three years and you don't think about your loss, that you know, then you, and then you do. It didn't mean you didn't have closure, it didn't mean you did. I think it's a word we just need to eliminate.
0: I'm gonna have closure on closure. Closure <laughs> we we just closed it. Exactly. It's over. I'm I'm moving on. Yeah, it's okay. Time. So Other let's yeah. let's move into the framework, if you will, that you're offering that is, I think, radically different than stages that lead to some end point, which is this idea of storytelling. Help me understand how either voicing or writing, sharing my story of grief is really going to help. How does that change me?
1: Sharing, you know, you know, we talk about embracing your story, knowing your story. Well, of course, you know, most of us know our story, but the story may have gotten lost again in this process of trying to make sure we get grief right or that we're doing it right. So what I'm really encouraging folks to do is to step into that story. And we have um, processes in the book that help you connect even at a deeper level. And And I tell a story in the book about a fellow I was seeing that, um, you know, just I couldn't get him on my Steps and Stages program. I was working everywhere I could to kind of make that make sense to him. He just wanted to talk. And I began to realize that when we look at primarily what folks need, it's acknowledgment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, about what we need to do as a community. But the idea of connecting to your story is to um, know that you're, you had a unique relationship with the one you lost, it can't be any anything else because it starts with your unique attachment to the one who died. And so my encouragement is rather than trying to figure out if I'm getting it right or wrong, to really deepen into the story to see how it has been part of your life. And then it starts to make sense, the depth of feeling that you have about the absence of that person. And so we kind of go through a three-chapter Way of thinking about that, you know, life before the loss, the death itself, and then life after the loss. Those are sort of the loosely um, described three chapters of our story. Of course, the third story is still going The third chapter is still going on. And so there are, there are ways in, this, in the book to try and just prompt questions. Um, you know, for instance, I ask a question many times with folks, Not tell me, tell me about who, who it was that you lost. Also, tell me about who you got to be with that person that you don't get to be with anybody else. That's a loss.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: there, are, there are ways in which we connect to those we love that they are unique to us, but it's unique to ourselves to be with them. I think about a friend that died, and he thought I was the funniest guy in town. Nobody laughs, has laughed at hard at my material.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is he, I miss getting to be funny in the way that he thought I was funny. So I miss him, and I miss that part of me, I got to be with him. That's an example uh, of how we can deepen our story if we step into it and really try and understand it at all sorts of levels.
0: Now, you mentioned that what people are seeking is acknowledgement. So I write my story down. Isn't it important that I share it with someone, that there's some acknowledgement of this story of grief? It, it, that's the
1: completed circle, that if we have our story and we don't have a place for it to go, it feels incomplete. And many folks don't, and I understand that. And we make room for that as we write about it. But, and some folks are just introverted and don't want to, you know, not necessarily introverted, but just so private, they don't necessarily want to take that step. I think when possible, and, and that's where we, we'll talk about maybe how we can be better as a community, the story is in its fullness if we have a place for it to be received. And that's why a lot of people end up in my office, is that they don't have anywhere else for their story to be received. They may not be having any real clinical symptoms I need to deal with. There are some folks here that are here because the death was traumatic, and we have to work through some of the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress aspects of their loss. But there's a group of folks that come just because they're, they're isolated and don't have a place to share their story. And so I think the fullness and the richness of the sacredness of the story is at its best when there is the right kind of place for it to be received.
0: I want to talk about that in quite some depth, if that's okay. And I, I think it, this comes from a place of knowing somebody very well who went through a series of losses. And even though this person was friends with many therapists and other people, she had a really deep sense that nobody really wanted to hear her story in all of the detail that she wanted to describe it, that it wasn't considered part of our sort of friendship circle or function to provide that for each other. And I wonder if you can talk more about a vision, if you will, that you would have of a community that knows how to be there for each other's grief.
1: I do, and and we address that in some detail in the book when we talk about help for the helper. And you know, the idea is again more organic and simple than we might make it out to be. Um, part of it is presence and, and and attuned listening and a open heart to receive the story. It is our own anxiety, and as many years as I've done this, it, it happens to me if I'm in the role of driving to the house. Uh, where someone has, uh, loved one has died, I say that same thing to myself that probably most of us say, and that is, what in the world am I going to say to this dear person? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how can I be present to this dear person? My role there is not to guide or to coach or to minimize or make it better or spin it or find the positives. It is, it is truly to be with and, to, and what I call sitting with, just being present. And I think our anxiety sort of gets in our way because it's almost contrary to our instincts to not try and change the suffering that someone may be experiencing. So the, the work of this is not to find you know, new things to say as much as it is to learn how to listen. Learn what that attunement looks like. Learn how to be present. And then consistency over time. You know, the you know, so many folks say it was all kind of over when the last casserole dish was picked up. The the community really fades away. And so we give ideas. You know, call on the second anniversary. Always make sure you call on special days. Write a note just because you're thinking. Um, when we looked at some of the research that uh, a couple of authors did. A survey, and I think they got eight thousand surveys back. You know, what do you need in the time of your loss? And the number one thing was acknowledgement. So that's got more science to it than just art. That there really is a desire to just know. And so, in description of what you're looking at in that friendship circle, these sounded like all folks who certainly had um, you know kind of a human understanding, but it just didn't click. They didn't the friend didn't get what they needed which is, um, you know, again, I think that very ten- tender, gentle being with that's so important. And being with past the days of, of the death, being with weeks and months later. Um, so in, in some ways, it's sort of like we're talking about with the organic nature of grief. The organic nature of being the helper is to take the pressure off yourself by not figuring out what to say and being present. Now, in that... I also, we write about the discouragement of things like saying, uh, of giving cliches, trying to make somebody feel better. There's a difference between consolation, which is to make you feel better, and condolence, which is to be with you in your sadness. And it's very tempting to sort of wrap this all up sometimes with cliches. Oftentimes with folks I work with, we spend a little time with me asking this question, tell me about some things that were said to you that you're struggling with by those who are trying to help. And almost always somebody's got something. And not bad intended folks, well-intended, well-motivated, desire to be helpful, but they just said something that didn't match, didn't attune. It was minimizing um, all the way to something that was hard to hear. So how we, how we change as a community is just, I think, so crucial To being able to create an environment where we don't have to have, not only not have shame about our loss, but not feel like um, we have to protect others from who we are, because we're still in a a state of mourning.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I want to dig in a little bit deeper here, because you're saying, you know, I don't know what to say. Well, that's not the right way to go about it. It's your presence that matters. But I don't know what to write in the card. I don't know Mm -hmm. what to say when I get on the phone. It's one thing if it's a close friend and I can just sit next to them, but for people who are not in that immediate circle, I just don't, I don't know how to reach out in a way that makes sense. I'm so overwhelmed with sadness and, you know, I I don't have the kind of connection. I don't know what to do. What would be your advice for those situations, which I think a lot of people find themselves in a lot of the time?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, again, simple is, is good, and that is it can start with a, an authentic, I am sorry that you are going through this difficult time. And, and, you know, that I think is the shortest version of connection. Beyond that is I, if you want to, I want to hear more about your life with him or her, about what this has meant to you. Um, I, I want to be able to listen. But I think the really initial response is to just, and it may feel overstated, but there's not many other ways of saying this, is I am very sorry. My loving condolences to you about this. Um, And and then not go further, not say, and I know exactly how you feel, or I know it's going to get better. Just stop with the acknowledgement of your sorrow for their sorrow.
0: Okay, I'm going to be a little challenging here, Patrick. You're the expert, but I went through an experience of loss, and I got many cards that said, I'm sorry for your loss. And I noticed at a certain point none of them touched me or penetrated. It was like, oh, I was like, everybody knows to say now, I'm sorry for your loss. So I have 50 cards that say, I'm sorry for your loss. And none of them really touched me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Those cards didn't touch me.
1: Yeah, well, if you look at that, and I agree that can be, that's kind of the, the, most simplistic and short thing to say. But if you look at that from what you wished you had heard, uh, let me kind of take that back to you. What do you wish you would have heard?
0: Something more personal. I know how much yeah. blah, blah, blah meant to you. And um, right. so that might have helped if there was something like that. Yeah. It's almost like Hallmark know. got a hold of, I'm sorry for your loss. Right. right.
1: I, g- I agree. And I mean, I see that again as a starting place, but I think something more personal is that I know how much you loved him or her or I, I, again, not I know, but I imagine your life without him or her will be very hard or different. You know, something that does have more personal touch to them. Or if they knew the person, to say, I knew who he or she was the best I could in your life and what what an absence or what a hole that may be for you. Um, Those kind of things take it up a, a step, again, without trying to, over prescribe anything that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And then I think the next level is is indeed the more personal. And that is tell me more. Tell me how you are.
0: Now, having sat in the counselor's chair and heard people share with you the damaging things that they heard in the grieving process, can you just summarize for our listeners some of the things that were really, these are the things that people reported historically have just been so painful. Don't do these things
1: yeah the the, the don't uh, some of the things i i've heard i mean the the most consistent thing is that it feels minimized that how it's you know what the response is is to say this is not that big a loss i mean that's the implied is that um you know we know you and you're going to get fine and you're a fighter you know things that again just change the acknowledgement now sometimes and i i think i tell a story in the book about a woman who came to see me who's whose baby had died, and uh, one of the relatives says to her, you know, God must have really wanted that baby more than you. Well, that's damaging. You know, the the poor woman had to really work through the question of was she being punished. So you can get things that are an edge like that. Again, I'm not able to judge whether that woman had bad intent. I doubt if she did. But it was the kind of thing that ends up with somebody uh, having to now think through their own Uh, character you know is something wrong with me did I do something wrong so I would say the majority are not hurtful like that the majority are just in some form minimizing or again a cliche that tends to to simplify it and all the cliches usually have a spin towards something that's better you know that it's more positive he or she's in a better place or you know at least they got to live the full life you know that's not necessarily, depending on your belief, untrue things, but they're not where I am right now. Where I am right now is in the deep missing and and pain of this relationship in my life that's lost.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, another comment you make is that often people say something like, please let me know if I can help. But that can sometimes not be the most effective thing because you're not really offering any actual help. You're just kind of throwing that out without any follow-through. I thought that was interesting because I know sometimes when there's a loss, I either say something like that or I think to say something like that because I want to help, but I, I also feel just kind of ineffectual and I'm probably not going to do anything. So what's your suggestion around that?
1: Well, actually do something, you know, to Oh, that. Say, yeah, that. <laughs> say, I'm going to bring you dinner next Thursday, and if you want to visit, we can visit. If not, I'll just drop it off. Um, or it looks to me like your, your grass needs to be cut and I can get that done for you, or do you, or the kids need to be picked up. You know, look, kind of use your radar to see if there isn't something to do rather than that kind of open-ended offer. Because, again, I think well-meaning, but very few folks are going to follow through with that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if your intuition is, is working for you, you should be able to see something that, that might be done mm-hmm. and then actually do it, and then do it again. You know so the the briefed I, I think don't want to have to solicit the help they need. It, they can and they may, but it's just good to have it offered. And if you get turned down, don't personalize that. It, it, you know better to have offered um, and and you may learn a little bit more about what they do need. So I do think that that's a, an often stated uh, often made statement that isn't necessarily, over time, becomes sort of meaningless.
0: Mm-hmm. I think one of the traps that a lot of people fall into, I know I fall into it, is just avoidance. I just sort of avoid right. that person somehow, because right. I, I don't know, I'm just I avoid. And it seems like right. that's, that's actually the opposite of the acknowledgement that they really want.
1: Yeah, and the avoidance can come in a couple of ways. One is, uh, you know, I don't want to make them feel worse, you know, by asking them how they're doing. Well, let them tell you that they don't want to talk. I re- really would encourage folks to err on the side of being told, you're giving me more than I need than for somebody to be as isolated as they can get. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to approach and, you know, make yourself a note if you have to to say, it's the anniversary of the death, I need to make a call or uh, just an email, I was thinking about you today. Or, you know, let me take you to coffee. I didn't know your, your dad very well. I'd like to hear some stories about him. Just reaching out, I think, is, is offering such the kind of support we ought to be giving each other when we're going through this.
0: Now, there's one sentence I took out of the book that I want to hear you comment on. It has to do with the kind of listening that you mentioned bereaved people really crave and need and here's the quote you said listening with deep attention and compassion literally changes something in the brain of the person being heard i thought that was so interesting what happens in the brain of the person being heard
1: well you know we in the therapy business have been doing what we've been doing for a long time without really much scientific evidence that it's useful so aren't we lucky that now we have all this brain science that's coming out we can actually take pictures of the brain and see that maybe something's actually happening. So I think what is happening in the brain is that deep acknowledgement and recognition opens up the mind. And what we would say is it sort of creates new neural pathways where I can just get said what I need to say, have it acknowledged and supported, not have to defend or self-criticize. And it really has, I think, a powerful effect on just the state of mind that we're in. Because it's that loving, caring, holding attunement. Um and we, we you know, those of us who have done the parenting th- thing you know, we learned that fifty years ago in in terms of how do we listen to kids. You get a whole lot further if you're able to listen and reflect than sometimes guiding and coaching. Something happens where just my humanness and your humanness connect. And really what's probably happening more than anything is just the sense of safety, that I can feel safe with this person as I tell them what's inside me. And, and, and thus we're in a relaxed, not unpainful state of mind, but we're not in an anxious state of mind that feels unsafe because we feel like we're going to get judged or criticized or abandoned in what we're doing. So I do think it, you know, if we summed up what does that kind of listening do, it creates safety. How does our mind um, respond? With safety, it opens up. We're able to hear ourselves and understand and really create our own self-compassion because we, we understand that what we're experiencing is what happens when we love someone.
0: There's a chapter, Patrick, in Getting Grief Right that you call the culture of positivity. And you're looking at our contemporary Western culture and how it handles grief and mourning with this emphasis on, you know, get on through it. You're strong. And I'm curious how grief and mourning have been approached in other times and other cultures, and what you think our contemporary culture needs to learn from these other times and cultures.
1: Well, we, we, you know, we look probably at, in our culture, a pre-industrial time when life was more in the community. you know, and, and those who were bereaved were honored for a period of time. You remember the wearing of the black or the black armband and, um, you know, so those who were grieving were, were noted in the community as going through a special time. So the theory would be that when industrialization started and communities sort of collapsed and everybody were sort of crowded in, there wasn't any time or acknowledgement of that. So I think we did probably have good acknowledgment and rituals in the community at a certain point in our own culture that have, have changed with modernization. And you can certainly still read some of the anthropology of other cultures that really do take time out and create rituals for the ones who are, who are grieving and help them um, you know, process that uh, over time. The culture positivity, you positivity, know, we write a little bit in the book about the history of that, and it's deep, deep, deep in our culture. And, it, and don't, you know, I'm not making a statement that there's something inherently wrong with positivity. But when you begin to label emotions as either negative or positive, then we would likely label the emotions of uh, grief as negative. And that's dangerous. That's, again, suggesting I'm doing it wrong. So the label of negative or positive emotion really should not be applied to many of our human experiences. It, it just is what we are experiencing. And so in this culture, I think, you know, we have to fight. And I, I'm, you know, one of many, many voices, I think, who are trying to say we need to have a different um, way of treating people who grieve and not see that they are wallowing or stuck in negative emotions or they're not being positive enough. The other thing I think we inadvertently do is we reward people who look like they're not grieving and we'll call them positive well i can promise you many of them are just presenting like they're not grieving because it doesn't feel safe and when the days over and the door closed they've got to be with their uh, their sadness over their loss And you can kind of hear that in language how is he or she doing oh my gosh they're doing horrible they're just a mess you know they can't really get up and function speaking of their grief how is he or she doing oh they're great they're back at work in a few days Really, so it's a positive person. So I think our language, you know not necessarily by intent to harm, it sort of reinforces that if you're doing well, then you're a positive person, but that doing well may mean that that person is just having to shut down everything they're going through. So I think for for listeners, you know be conscious of not of knowing that you don't know how somebody is doing and how they're presenting. May be what they've got to do in a certain circumstance to get through the day, and by all means, be careful to not label their grief and their grief um, process as something that's either positive or negative. It just doesn't lend itself to that.
0: Mm-hmm. At this point in your life, Patrick, how do you honor your grief, if you will? What do you do in relationship well, to your, your, you know, your baby son Ryan that you talked to us about, or yeah. any any grief in your life?
1: Well, we were just at, uh, you know, every day on the anniversary of his death, I don't work. I haven't done that every day since he died. And that was May 17th. So May 17th my wife and I were spend our time at the cemetery and, you know, well, we have two or three family members, my mom and my dad are both buried near my son. And so we make that trip um, you know, to do that. This book has really been that. It's been a way of honoring him and You know, there's uh, a a deep desire I have is to, um, you know, for folks to see that here I am all these years later. And um, in the process of writing this book, I just had so many days where a surge of sadness would come and this sense of, gosh, today he would be 36 years old and what would all that look like. So I'm very conscious of, you know, when you lose someone as young as he was, there's a who he was and then a who he was supposed to be. And so I'm very conscious of that. My, my lovely new Japanese uh, daughter-in-law at Christmas, this was just kind of caught us off guard, she said, let's do something today that's in my culture. Can we take food to the cemetery? Well, yeah, we can do that. She had never been to the cemetery to see where our loved ones are buried. So we packed up the family and the grandkids, and off we went to the cemetery on Christmas Day, And we put a cookie on every grave. It was just the sweetest thing. And in in her culture, they, several times a year, go to the cemetery and and honor their ancestors and do so in very defined ways. And one of the ways they do that is to take food to leave for them. So she brought to us a a real gift, and we'll do that every year. Mm -hmm. load up on a holiday and go to the cemetery and leave some food.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you emphasize in getting grief right is that we each have a unique way of grieving, that there's no one path to grief. Why is that so important for people to understand that, that each of us has a unique way of grieving?
1: I think it's all still in the idea of, of making sure we are careful to not be self-critical about how we grieve. And we talk about the idea that we, two, several things happen. One is we have a unique relationship. We have a unique attachment. So that's part of our uniqueness. The other is we have our own personality type. You know, how we are, are wired in our basic selves is going to have a lot to do with that. And so that uniqueness is to not be competitive or comparative with how you think you ought to grieve or how you see other people grieve. But, again, to own that for yourself is this is who I am. This is my story. And although there's certainly within a family many overlapping stories, there still is a sense of uniqueness to it. And I, we really emphasize that uniqueness to bring out the point of attachment, that, that attachment is what is at the basis. We cannot, again, grieve who we're not attached to, and we attach because, uh, because we love and because we're, we're bound to attach. So we look at that uniqueness both in terms of how we are, who we are, the circumstances of the death, the life stage where we are. Um, all of those are part of our story. So when we talk about that, what we're really trying to do again is help folks deepen their story. It's not stuff they don't know. We're just, we're, our desire for the book is to bring that out in some ways that may have, have not been evident.
0: I want to ask you, Patrick, kind of a reaching question, if you will, in a certain sense. I noticed being with the book, Getting Grief Right, as I was reading it, I reflected on various losses in my life. But I also tuned in to a feeling of grief about species loss and the environment and other collective issues for the whole planet. And I thought to myself, I wonder what Patrick O'Malley has to say about getting grief right when it comes to the grief we feel about the environment and our collective.
1: Hey, we, we're specific in our approach to deal with death loss, but there is really such importance in understanding living loss you know, in the same way that living loss is things like you just described, what's going on in the world that saddens us, what's going on around the world, that saddens us. What happens uh, to the environment, uh, fractured friendships, um, you, you know, divorce. I mean, there's just so many living losses. So what I would say is that's again, it's going to be unique in terms of your who you are and what you find you, you're attached to. And so if you notice those feelings of grief related, to sort of a, a, a sense of an environment or the species or the culture or whatever it is, I think go backwards with that and say, if I'm feeling this sadness, then it is describing to me an attachment that I have um, to certain parts of the world, to certain parts of my world that are either in jeopardy or are dying, and thus I'm going to be sad about that. There is nothing again unhealthy or diagnosable about that. It speaks to the fact that your heart, um, it, you know, takes in what it takes in and it attaches to it, and in that you've created a bond. And when that bond is threatened by extinction or death or or whatever it is, that's our natural response is to, again have that sense of loss and sadness.
0: So, what do you see? Having worked with so many people, is the shift that happens when we connect to the idea that our grief is a function of our attachment or our love? How does that change the griever?
1: Well, what it does, I think, is take the pressure off. And it's hard to argue with, now that I'm sad, it's about my love, then, then what's wrong with me? And I think it's important, I'm going to steer off on this for just a second, to, to talk about complicated attachment. And I, I mentioned that in the book. I see many folks who wonder why they're not grieving or why they may even be feeling, and this is a very hard thing for folks to say, a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's the same principle, and that is that that attachment was complicated. That attachment, uh, if you want to call it that, may have been dangerous. So I get a lot of folks who come in and say, my, my, you know, somebody in my life has died, and I ought to be feeling more than I'm feeling. I get the opposite rather than why am I feeling so much. Well, when we walk into that story, typically what we're looking at, or what ends up happening, is that the attachment itself was in peril because it wasn't safe. And it's the same sort of relief I see with people who realize their sadness is about love. I see a lot of relief in folks who understand that they're not, the fact that they're not grieving is not a character flaw, not grieving like they thought they would, but is really based on an attachment that was complex. And maybe an attachment was even painful and damaging. Mm -hmm. So mostly to answer the question, what I see is relief. Either direction. Either why I'm not feeling more than I do or why I'm feeling as much as I do.
0: Don't a lot of people feel relief when someone who's been ill for a long time or an elderly person dies and there's a sense of they're out of their suffering? Right. How does that fit in with what you're saying?
1: Well, that's still a relief usually based on a loving attachment. And that, that is compassion for someone suffering. And so for somebody's soul to be released from their body is a relief. Now, you'll still hear, I still hear some folks saying, I, that doesn't feel right. I feel, you know, guilty for even thinking that. Yeah. But again, if you look at it from the point of their love for them, it was their deep pain for their pain and their suffering. And so, to again, to attach that back to love, and to understand that your loved one was in pain makes that sense of relief not feel like you're like you're feeling something wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. There's one thing I want to highlight here before we conclude our conversation. You were talking about recently going to the gravesite and offering a cookie, the Japanese ritual to the beings that have been deceased in your family, and here's something that you write about in the book that we can think of grief in a different way as quote an ongoing relationship between the living and the deceased and that really got my attention this idea that when grief comes up in our life it's part of a relationship between us and the deceased that really touched me and i wonder if you can comment on that
1: yeah they uh, sort of um clinical way of describing that or reach the model is the idea of enduring bonds, that our bonds don't stop after death. When you look at the, at the steps and stages and closure model, it almost, if not does, it seems to imply that the bond is broken because of death, that there is no more ongoing relationship. And so I'm clearly in the camp of enduring bonds and that honoring of the relationship, that remembering, that uh, thinking, writing, rituals, whatever those are, Continues that relationship in this lifetime. So other cultures, I think, probably do that differently and maybe more than we do. Um, and I and I do I think you know in other even subcultures in this culture that's a very acceptable way of thinking about it. But I, I believe it's those two words are really lovely way to put it, and that is it's an enduring bond. It's not a bond that ends because of death. Mm-hmm. And yes, to stay in that process of honoring that in whatever way you know feels like it's honoring. I think is a very healthy place to be.
0: And then finally, Patrick, you wrote Getting Grief Right with a good friend of yours and co-author, Tim Madigan. And as I was reading the book, one of the things that touched me was how when we feel our grief in a deep and pure way, it can connect us with friendship and how much we love certain people. And I wonder if you can comment on that, the connection between feeling our grief, honoring it, and friendship.
1: You know, there are, we didn't say this specifically, but let me, uh, I think it's a good time to talk about uh, the power of support groups as an example of that. I will hear some folks who connect with others who have gone through loss, who were strangers to them at the time of the death, create a, a lovely intimacy and they will say this feels to me closer than some of my friends and family members because we we share our loss together and that that is so important as a part of a community and when you hear somebody talk about your, their loss and you have had your loss and there is intimacy it's just a lovely sacred deep intimacy and that certainly experience Tim and I have had with each other we've we've had our losses and we you I know, have a friendship for many, many years, and we just kind of kept working at this, and it's been a wonderful bonding time for, for Tim and me through this to, to have shared our losses with each other and to take this message to the world. So I think it's as deep a community as you can, as you can have when you have that kind of connection of love and support and com- compassion and reality sharing and telling your story with each other. And that's what we hope to happen out of this, is that folks will open up and tell their story and receive story and and create that really, as you described it, just wonderful, deep, loving, intimate connection with each other.
0: I've been speaking with Patrick O'Malley along with Tim Madigan. He's the author of the new book, Getting Grief Right, Finding Your Story of Love in the Sorrow of Loss. Patrick, thank you so much for your true heart and for all of the energy you put into writing this beautiful and helpful book. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tammy. I appreciate this time very much.
0: SoundsTrue.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Many voices, one journey.